Welcome to IBBA Insights, providing expert advice on buying or selling small businesses. IBBA Insights is presented by the International Business Brokers Association, the world's largest nonprofit organization for those helping others sell or buy businesses. Now, here's your host, Chris Diglio. Hello, and thank you for joining me today on this episode of IBBA Insights. Now, the world of business sales is changing rapidly. Things that were non-existent years ago are becoming more commonplace today, especially in the sale of Main Street businesses. Buyers are more sophisticated than ever, and they're relying on tools and professional services to help them determine the accuracy of information they receive during the due diligence process. One specific item becoming more prevalent in the sale of businesses is the quality of earnings report, commonly referred to as QOE or QOV. So why is this important to you as a business owner or business broker? The answer to that is simple, because the sale of the business might come down to the results that you see in this report. So today we're going to talk to an industry expert who's going to enlighten us all about quality of earnings, what it is, why it's important, what to expect, and how to prepare for it. Our guest today is Evan Otavianos, and he serves as director in Bennett Thrasher's Transaction Advisory Services Practice. He specializes in providing due diligence support for merger acquisitions and divestiture transactions to private equity and strategic clients. His expertise encompasses buy-side and sell-side accounting and financial due diligence. Evan's expertise is also recognized in his role as an instructor for financial due diligence and valuation courses in the certification program for the M&A source. Evan, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to IBBA Insights. Thank you, Chris. Happy to be here. Appreciate that. You and I first started talking several months ago. We were at an M&A source conference and we both sat on a panel and kind of during that panel, the subject of QOE came up and we started talking about how in the sale of Main Street businesses, we'll call it upper Main Street, the larger Main Street deals and maybe the lower of the lower middle market, how it's becoming more and more commonplace for the Q of E to come into play when it comes to the sale of these businesses, although M&A source is a true lower middle market and M&A um, transaction organization or association, and they're dealing with the sale of larger businesses. Here at the IBBA on our podcast, we're dealing with the sale of small businesses, but we bring this to the people today because as a business owner, we never want to put someone in a position where they're like, what is this? And why didn't we know about it? Evan, we discussed it and talked about it. We thought it would be great to be able to enlighten the audience, both business owners or the Main Street business brokers that are doing transactions of this size that may run into a Q of E. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Over the last few years, especially, we've seen quality of earnings and financial due diligence more broadly coming more and more downstream. And I think that's a trend we'll expect to continue in years to come, for sure. So Evan, I believe the best way to start anything is just with a an introduction or a definition of how would you define quality of earnings and why is it an important metric for investors and in businesses? Yeah, I kind of view quality of earnings as an analysis to reset baseline reported financial statements of a company to really reflect what's recurring and normal for ongoing operations. The word sustainability comes to mind, right? What are the sustainable earnings of a business? 
And when we talk about earnings in the context of a Q of E, that's typically reflected in terms of EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Uh, and the reason why EBITDA is used is it's typically used in valuation models, particularly in the context of M&A. Uh, you know, usually it's thought of in the context of a multiple of EBITDA. And a lot of times what's interesting, folks think we're audited or reviewed. We've been reviewed or audited for years. We don't need a quality of earnings analysis. And so a lot of times folks view them interchangeably, but it's important to really know that they can be very different, right? An audit is usually going to be focused on fiscal years. So they're not usually going to look at the last 12 months, which is typically the focus for diligence. Also, an audit is concerned with making sure Financial statements are reported in accordance with GAAP, right? And while that can be, it can be a part of a Q of E, it's not the sole purpose of a Q of E, right? Uh, going back to that sustainability comment, right? A Q of E wants to really tease out what's non-recurring, non-run rate, out of period sort of noise in the numbers, and an audit just doesn't do that. And the quality of earnings, it's a very detailed report, and it's a very pricey report. It's not an inexpensive proposition. So that would probably eliminate the sale of certain size businesses. But at what size of a business transaction does it really make sense or might you run into a Q of E? It's a good question. Q of E is not a one size fits all endeavor. It's not as standardized as a financial statement audit. So there's different kind of tiers that can be offered. And I would recommend any company to get at least some level of diligence. At the same time, you need to make sure that it's it makes financial sense, right? Usually I'd say once you reach maybe a couple million dollars of enterprise value and up, it might make sense to do a Q of E or perhaps a lighter touch Q of E. Um, it really all comes down to the risk tolerance of the seller. And then also on the buy side, the risk tolerance of the buyer. Um, at the end of the day, having a QV in place as a seller going to market really gives a lot of credibility to the numbers. Uh, a buyer is going to be much more comfortable making an offer based on numbers that have been vetted. It also allows you to find and fix things on the front end, which increases odds of actually getting to close and typically can condense that timeline, which is really important. And then really just uh, avoids the headache and heartache of maybe a retrade later on down the line. Yeah, Evan, I've been doing this for 25 years, and I like to say nothing ever surprises me, but then it happened. It surprised me. I was involved in a transaction, and the enterprise value of the transaction was a little over a million dollars, and the buyers came in, and they did a they had a full-fledged uh, Q of E report done on the company, and I was really surprised on a deal that size, they were going to go through the expense of having it done. They have investors to answer to, and they want to make sure that what they're doing is the right thing. So I guess it's not going to surprise me anymore. And I'm going to look at it possibly as maybe being commonplace on these transactions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A lot of times it's going to be required by investment committee of kind of these private equity groups. Also, if there's financing involved, a lot of times the lender is going to require that. Like I said, it's coming more and more downstream and definitely expected to see that going forward. The Q of V report, are there different levels? Is there a Q of E light? Is there are there different or is there just one one report that is considered a Q of E? 
Yeah, I alluded to it earlier, and it's, it's a good question, right? There are no standardized sets of procedures similar to a financial statement audit, right? The scope can vary widely, as would the fee, right? And the, while the scope can vary, the deliverable can also vary, right? We offer data book or Excel-based deliverable options, as well as full written reports. And those can be full reports or executive summary and kind of everything in between. And then a scope can be as light as we just want to tie out cash to the bank accounts, right? And that, that just gives you some level of assurance over the numbers that what you're seeing in the P&L and the balance sheet is ultimately coming through in the form of cash. That is, I think, as light as you can get uh, all the way through. We need a full cash to accrual conversion and a full written report, which will obviously be a more expensive endeavor depending on what their finance, the condition of their financial statements. Sometimes you get in there and their full cash basis, right? That's going to be a little more time consuming and expensive than a company that, you know, has been audited for five years. They've got a CFO, a controller, accounting policies and procedures fully documented. Yes. To answer your question, the long and short of it is they can vary quite widely. You mentioned something earlier that I found fascinating. You talked about if you own a business, you should have a Q of E. And so typically when people think of a Q of E, they think of a due diligence, the business is under a contract or an LOI, and a buyer is going to come in and have the Q of E done. And we'll talk about that in, in just a little bit. But from the seller's point of view, why might it be important for, the, for them to invest in a Q of E? Yeah, I think it comes down to surety of close, right? I think having that Q of E is going to make getting to close more likely. It's going to condense that timeline. It's also going to save the, the chances of a retrade later on down the line. That becomes less likely. Also, the business owner, they have a business to run, right? So if they can talk to us and get some of that diligence out of the way on the front end, when the buyer comes in, usually we're going to be the ones doing the interfacing and talking to them the seller may need to get involved to a certain extent, but it'll be a lot less and there'll be a lot less involvement from them later on down the line. And so I think that adds a lot of value for sellers as well. If I own a business, Evan, and I have this done and now my broker, my intermediary, my representative in the sale of the business is dealing with potential buyers and they present this report, how likely is it that buyer is just going to accept that. I'm assuming they're still going to go forward with their own Q of E, but where I really feel the value is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is your negotiating power to the ability to really be able to stand behind what you're, mm -hmm. what you're representing. Yeah, absolutely. If you have numbers that are vetted through Q of E at the time, you know, of LOI, that is going to give a lot more credibility to those numbers and there's going to be less opportunity for the seller to come in and try to make changes to their offer. And that's, if they try to make a change, you could say, Hey, you knew about that at the time of your bid. We provided that information. You can't come in and change your mind. Yes, they will likely still do their own Q of E. However, it tends to be a bit of a shorter timeline because they have a lot of uh, work that's already been done. They can leverage some of that work. And so Typically, if you prepare a sell-side Q of E, uh, the buy side will receive a copy of our data book and uh, we'll, they'll go through it and vet it and come up with a ton of questions, right? And set up a meeting with us where we will stand by our work and answer those questions. Evan, I have a colleague of mine 
who recently completed a transaction. And to their surprise, when the business went for, was presented to the bank for an SBA loan, they -hmm. knew that the business was going to be sent out for a third-party valuation to be performed on the company. But what surprised them was this specific banking institution also required a Q of E. And you mentioned earlier, so I want to know what report, the Q of E report, how does that play into the buyer's ability to borrow money for the purchase of a business? Yeah, you know, a Q of E is oftentimes going to be a requirement of the lender. They want to see what that, you know, what they're lending on, right? And they still need to do their own due diligence, right? When we do a Q of E for a seller, that seller is our client. And so they own that deliverable. Uh, a lot of times what happens is we share our work product with third parties, whether it be the buyer or a lender or reps and warranties, uh, insurance underwriter, whoever it may be, they need to sign a letter called a non-reliance letter that we provide that says, hey, we're receiving access to your work product. Uh, we want to take a look at it, but we are not going to place reliance on it. It's a risk mitigation mechanism, but ultimately it says they're doing their own due diligence. So this is one piece of the puzzle but it is an important piece. And usually we'll get on the phone with them as well and answer any questions that they may have. Business owners, the entrepreneurial spirit, always wanting to be able to get ahead, getting ahead of the situation or a really shrewd business broker or business intermediary that wants to really represent their client well and prepare them for this is out there probably listening right now saying, okay, you're talking to Q of E, you're telling me I might run into it, you're saying it's important and the bank may require this. So give me the scoop. What are the factors that are going to contribute to a to re- getting back a good Q of E report? What are the things you're looking for when you're performing a Q of E? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And there's no one size fits all. I do think one of the important factors that it comes back to is sustainability of earnings, right? A buyer is going to be interested in what you've done historically, but they're really most interested in what you're expected to do going forward, right? And so that's why the sustainability matters. But in a Q of E, we look beyond just the numbers, right? We're looking at qualitative factors. We want to understand how the financial statements come together. What is the accounting team in place? Do you have a CFO? Do you have a controller? Who's doing the accounting? Do you have documented formally accounting policies and procedures? Are they being followed every month? What does your month end close process look like? How does that differ from what you may be doing on a quarterly or annual basis? A lot of times there are differences. And if you're looking at a trailing 12 month period and it's not the year end, those differences can matter. When it comes down to estimates in the financial statements, certain accruals, are you being conservative or aggressive? We look at things like customer concentration, vendor concentration, to the extent you have a diverse customer base, that is going to contribute to quality earnings, right? I think another important one is off-balance sheet risks. That's something we typically inquire about, right? Do you have any sort of pending litigation? Have you been deferring maintenance on your capital expenditures, right? If you have a fleet of vehicles, has it been 20 years since you've replaced them, right? Those are all the things that contribute to the sustainability and quality of earnings. Evan, we've done many shows on working capital, CapEx, debt, all of the things that come into play in the sale 
of a business. Do any of those come into play? You mentioned CapEx a little bit, but do any of those come into play as far as working capital or debt? How does that factor into a Q of E, if at all? Yeah, that's a great question. And so obviously a quality of earnings report, most people think earnings is a punchline and it is an important part of the quality of earnings report, but typically we are also looking at working capital and net debt, particularly if we're on the buy side. If we're on the sell side, we do look at it, but we don't typically volunteer that in our report. And most deals are transacted on a cash-free, tax-free, and debt-free basis, assuming a normalized level of working capital. And so in order to figure out normal working capital, we typically look at a 12-month view to try to capture any seasonality that may exist, and we attempt to normalize working capital. One thing to keep in mind, any earnings adjustment or income statement adjustment that there may be, there is oftentimes a balance sheet and potential working capital impact. So you need to look at them in tandem to understand what normal working capital is. And then the flip side of working capital is debt, right? Everything on the balance sheet, particularly on the liability side, needs to be looked at and assessed as either working capital or debt. And the reason that matters is it affects the cash due to the seller ultimately, right? So if you say, hey, normal working capital in this business, based on our analysis and negotiation is a million bucks, right? And it comes time to close and you deliver a million one, right? Then that buyer is going to remit $100,000 back to the seller, right? And so that's part of where we add value is determining what that normal level is. If we're on the sell side, we try to get that number as low as possible. If we're on the buy side, typically as high as possible. And then in terms of what, what is treated as a debt-like item, those items will be dollar-for-dollar dollar reductions in the ultimate cash to the seller. And so it's not always straightforward. You would think debt is a somewhat simple-sounding concept, right? But you know you have bank debt, great. That, that goes on your net debt schedule. But there are things outside of that. Like I mentioned, say we've deferred capital expenditures on our fleet of vehicles for way too long, right? If I'm on the buy side, I'm going to try to, to ding the seller for that. Hey, you've intentionally deferred these capital expenditures. Another common one is deferred revenue. That a lot on recurring revenue businesses, if we're receiving upfront deposits from customers. If I'm on the buy side, I'm going to try to treat that as a debt-like item because in the context of a cash-free transaction, the seller's keeping the cash, but I'm stuck performing the obligation to service that until the remainder of the duration of the contract. So there are a lot of factors at play there that we do address in the QV. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's very helpful to those that are listening, the business owner, business broker, what to what they may encounter, what's going to be looked at. So Evan, I'd like to say we live in a perfect world, but we don't. <laughs> Things change almost on a daily basis. The speed is just, it's hard to keep up with everything nowadays, but we do. So when you're looking at a Q of E, how do how important is the current economic conditions or specifically current industry trends, things that are going on in certain influ in certain industries, and how does that influence your report, a Q of E report for a specific company that you're looking at? Yeah, it can play a pretty massive role in, in a Q of E in, in the operations of a business. Uh, a, a good example fairly recently that comes to mind is the, the COVID pandemic, right? Right around 2020, 2021, we were working on an urgent care roll-up for a private equity group, right? 
And so obviously there was a lot of kind of noise in the data. They were doing COVID tests. They were doing vaccine and all that sort of stuff. And in that scenario, we had to try to assess what the COVID bump was. They clearly had a, an increase in their business, but the buyer was concerned with, again, the sustainability. How long is that going to continue? What's going to happen after COVID, right? And so that's something we look at and try to tease out any way we can. In this scenario, we got data by uh, CPT code, and we were able to see exactly how much of their revenue was tied to those sort of you know, non-recurring type activities. Another thing we see, and we have seen recently, a little less so lately, thankfully, is inflation pressures, right? Some businesses have a lot more flexibility to pass costs along to customers, and some may not, right? Um, and so looking at that and understanding what the run rate really is something we dig into, particularly wood prices, if we're dealing with a distributor of building materials, right? They may have some margin pressure if they can't pass it along to their customer. And that's something we would try to normalize for. And then we've also seen it where there are supply chain shortages and folks are stocking up on inventory whenever they can get their hands on it. And so that's going to inflate inventory on the balance sheet and potentially inflate working capital, right? And what a seller may have to deliver. And so we would go in there and really try to understand the true inventory turns on a normalized basis and say, you know what, this is really an anomaly and we're going to rip that out and try to lower that working capital target. There's all sorts of things, whether it's COVID, inflation, supply chain, industry trends, all those sorts of things can come into play in a big way, for sure. That inventory level could be extremely important. It's a buyer beware atmosphere. You have someone mm -hmm. out there that possibly is just wanting to pull the wool over your eyes and you say, wow, look at the profitability this year over last year. The sales were about the same, but profitability has gone up 5%, 10%. Why is that? And then all of a sudden, you, if you look or take a deep dive into it, you see they went from a million dollars in inventory to $600,000 in inventory, and they were not replenishing the inventory or buying more, more inventory. Cost of goods potentially went down in their purchases, they, and their revenue went up. I assume in that you're you're trying to determine or a normalization of that or what's actually needed in the business. Absolutely. That's something we would look at. We would look at historical trends and attempt to normalize it, talk to management and understand what kind of the go forward looks like, even looking at forecasts and historical budget actuals. And there's all kinds of different ways we could tease some of that out and attempt to normalize it. Evan, some businesses are really tricky and difficult. I know construction can be difficult, but any business that has receivables in play or percentage of job completion. And now you mm -hmm. look at a business and one company is looking at their revenue one way and another company is looking at it a different way. So how does revenue recognition play a role in determining the quality of earnings? And I mentioned construction, but are there specific industries where this becomes more challenging? Yeah, revenue recognition is key. If your revenue is not right, your earnings aren't right. If your earnings aren't right, your valuation is likely not right. And from business to business, industry to industry, there's a lot of concepts that typically apply to all of them in terms of gap and accrual uh, basis accounting, right? Everyone's going to have payroll and bonuses and commissions and accruals for those. Those are pretty standard across all industries, right? 
But the thing that varies the most is going to be revenue recognition. And as you mentioned, in the context of a construction type business, they may need to be recognizing revenue on a percentage of completion basis. If they are on a cash basis for financial reporting, the the adjusted financials can be substantially different, right? We're attempting to align revenues with cost incurred and estimates on a job basis. And so it can have a massive impact. Another industry that's typically susceptible to, to big swings going from cash to accrual basis is healthcare, right? Just due to the third-party payer system, a lot of times we're providing service to a patient. Today, we're not going to get reimbursed for several months. A lot of times we don't know exactly what that reimbursement is going to be. And so on an accrual basis, you should be estimating that and accruing what you're ultimately going to receive back to the date of service. And so there's a lot of estimate involved in there. And again, that goes back to an earlier comment around how aggressive is the company being with their estimates. And a lot of times you can go in there in the context of a healthcare deal and look with the benefit of hindsight. And you can see, have they been aggressive? Have they been conservative? How good are they at estimating? Same with the construction business. Again, it all comes down to estimated percent complete. Once they complete projects, you can see how good are they at estimating. And then you can apply that logic to current open jobs, right? If they're aggressive or conservative, historically, you can make that a similar assumption on the open jobs and apply an adjustment based on that. You're looking at all of these factors, Evan. One of the things that, that I've seen happen and can happen is a company or a business changes their accounting policies or how they ask or how they do their estimates. Does that affect the perceived quality of earnings in any way? Yeah, it can. Absolutely. Ideally, in a perfect world, no one would ever change their accounting policies. But typically in a traditional Q of E, we're usually looking at two, two to three years of financial statements. And so if at any point over that time, we understand that there's been a change in how they're recording revenue or their capitalization policy or anything else, we will attempt to align that to either the current method or if we, for whatever reason, disagree with the current method, whatever we think is appropriate. So we want to make sure the financials are comparable on an apples to apples basis so you can understand trends more accurately. Evan, a professional like yourself is out there and they're retained or hired by someone to work on a Q of E. And you have a certain job that you have to perform and the results that you have to give back deliver to your client. If we talked about valuation, I've talked to valuation experts and they go in and when they're looking at financial statements, there are certain things they look for red flags or warning signs. When you're doing mm -hmm. a Q of E, does that exist? Are there red flags or warning signs that you look for when assessing the quality of earnings in a company's financial statements? Yeah, absolutely. One of the first things I do once we, we start a new project is trend the mon monthly trial balances for the last few years. I'm looking at monthly P&Ls, monthly balance sheets, and just looking at trends and anomalies. Are things trending the way you'd expect? What does gross margin look like on a monthly basis? Are there account balances, particularly on the balance sheet, that are not changing, right? A lot of times folks say, yeah, we're on an accrual basis, but you see the accruals on the balance sheet only update maybe quarterly or semi-annually or annually. That tells me they're not doing things consistently each and every month. 
just looking at the accounts, do they make sense? Are there accounts that just are logical that happens from time to time? And that's usually the first thing I do to try to tease out any red flags, any glaring sort of adjustments. The other thing that we do early on in a project is the proof of cash analysis, which I alluded to earlier, but that's where we take all the bank statements direct from the bank account for the last 12 months. And we compare that to revenue on the P&L, right? And a lot of times revenue on the P&L is on an accrual basis or quasi accrual basis. So we have to adjust that from you know, accrual basis to cash. And then once you adjust it, the cash basis revenue uh, per the financial statements should approximately align with the deposits from the bank statement, right? You tease out things like transfers and refunds from vendors, just miscellaneous things like that. But once you do it, those numbers should be pretty darn close. And if they're not, that could be a red flag, uh, particularly if the bank account is short cash. And so that's usually one of the first things we try to close the gap on. And if you can't, that's usually a deal killer. Evan, you mentioned a little earlier about, we talked about the recognition revenue and even expense recognition, but how does the timing of a revenue and expense recognition impact the quality of earnings? Yeah, like I said, want to make sure revenue is reported accurately, and that can vary widely by industry, but also most importantly, want to make sure that revenues and expenses are recorded, that they're matching the period in which they're recorded, particularly for inventory heavy businesses, right? If you're selling widgets, right? One of the first things I do is look at gross margin on a monthly basis. I've seen it many times where margin is 70% month one, negative 50% the next month, and then so on and so forth. And so that's that tells you that they're not matching the revenue with the cost of the goods that were actually sold in that month. And so again, it goes back to the concept of if revenue is not right, if costs aren't right, earnings aren't right, valuation is likely not right. And so that's something we try to normalize in, in acuity. Evan, one of the things that pops into the mind of a business broker or a business intermediary involved in the sale of a business beyond money and price and the, then the dreaded due diligence that's going to take place and happen is time because mm -hmm. they say time kills all deals. But you also want to make sure you're setting everyone up for an accurate look at what's going to happen. So they know if they go into a transaction, it's a cash transaction, okay, maybe you could close as quickly as 30 to 45 days. Okay, now the SBA is involved. Maybe it's 45 to 90 days, depending on how quickly things go back and forth. There's a valuation that has to be sent off for. But a Q of E, typical time frame for a Q of E. And I know it's a loaded question because that a lot of it depends on how quickly you get the information. But what is a typical time frame? Yeah, good question and good point on the data. I honestly think a lot of times the hardest part about my job is getting data. Once you have the data, it can be a fairly quick exercise. I would say from the time we receive data, it's usually somewhere between a three to five week timeline. And it's a very collaborative process. That's one thing to keep in mind, right? Like it's not that the seller provides us the data and we go off into a hole and then spit out a QB report. It, it doesn't work that way. It is a collaborative process. In a typical Q of E, I'd say we spend anywhere between six to 10 hours on calls or in meetings with the business owner, their accounting team, 
just to ask all of our questions, operational questions, accounting questions, understanding the anomalies that we're seeing in the financial statements. If we get the data, a lot of times we can look at the raw general ledger and tease some of this out on our own, but really that face-to-face time with management becomes critical. So I would say anywhere between three to five weeks is a pretty, pretty good timeline. The one thing, Evan, that strikes fear into the heart Mm -hmm. of a business owner is confidentiality. The leaking of information. Oh my God, my employees are going to find out this business is for sale. They're going to quit. And that some sometimes it's legitimate. Sometimes they just get a little carried away. But who's to argue with them because it's their business and it's their livelihood. And I understand yeah. why the confidentiality is so important to them. But in the Q of E, it may require at times on-site visits. Is that correct? Or is everything done via remote or Zoom or or in a manner like that? Yeah, it comes down typically to client preference. If they prefer to do things virtually, we do a lot of meetings just like the way you and I are doing this, Chris. So that's certainly an option. If they're local, they're more than welcome to come to our office. But you're absolutely right. We encounter all the time business owners that want to keep things confidential, but we have accounting questions and they haven't yet let their CFO know, right? And so at a certain point, you need to get them on the other side of the fence, right? And that just comes down to timing. The other thing in terms of timing is confidentiality of just proprietary information, right? If we're sending out information to, to get bids from buyers and they want to see a QV, a lot of times we'll produce two QV reports. One is a full report and one's redacted where we may go through, rip out customer names, employee names, vendor names. Sellers are sensitive to that. And so we we try to accommodate that in any way we can, whether it's having them in our office, redacting reports. We're pretty flexible and always accommodating to the business owner. Yeah, we've shared and talked about a lot of information today. And I appreciate all that you're willing and have been willing to share and all that you do for the industry within the MA source and now coming on our IBBA Insights podcast, if there were some words of wisdom you could leave or for the business owner out there or even for a business broker or intermediary, when it comes to quality of earnings, what would you say to them? It's a good question. I I would say, uh, as I'm sure you probably advise a lot of your clients on, uh, earlier the better. The sooner you can start engaging with a, a service provider on the diligence QV side, the better off you'll be. I have folks call me sometimes that say, say, hey, we're closing next week. Can you help? And I'll, I'll certainly try to help, but the, the value I can add is definitely limited in that scenario. So earlier, the better, my number one piece of wisdom. Great. So the very last thing I'd like to go over with you And I think it's very important. You've shared a lot of information today, but you have a business owner out there, or you may have a private investor looking to buy a business or business broker that's, yeah, this might make sense for some of my my listings. How do they contact you? Yeah, best way to get in contact with me is just going to Bennett Thrasher's website, uh, BTCPA, as in Certified Public Accountant. Dot net, btcpa.net. Uh, you can find me on there. And just as a quick commercial on Bennett Thrasher, we're a full service CPA firm headquartered in Atlanta. We have offices in Dallas and Denver. And so 
being a full service CPA firm, we have the traditional services of audit and tax and a variety of advisory practices, one of which is our transaction advisory team where I sit, which means I'm doing quality of earnings and financial diligence all day, every day. Thank you. I encourage those that are out there in the need of Q of E, certainly go to their website, reach out to Evan. He's very giving, very sharing, and most most important, he's going to steer you in the right direction. Evan, again, thank you so much for joining us today on IBBA Insight. It's been my pleasure to be able to talk with you and to learn from you today. So thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me, Chris. Thank you. You're welcome. So to those of you that are out there, always like to remind you, if you enjoyed today's episode and you want to hear other episodes of IBBA's Insights, you can go to ibba.org slash insights. And once you're there, you could subscribe by clicking the Apple, Android, or email icons. Then you never have to miss another episode of IBBA Insights again. Thanks again for letting me be part of your day. I look forward to bringing you other great guests like Evan in the future to help you and your business on the very next episode of IBBA Insights.